This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, April 1st. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Doug Blair. The Supreme Court is currently considering Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, a case that has the potential to severely limit or even eliminate access to abortion. Each year since 1974, the March for Life has peacefully made its way through the nation's capital, hoping for an end to abortion. Now that it might be at hand, the march is coming to the states, where the next fight for life will take place. President of March for Life, Jeannie Mancini, joins the show to discuss the next step in the pro-life movement and what a post-row world might look like. But before we get to Doug's conversation with Jeannie Mancini, let's hit our top news stories of the day. President Joe Biden says he has a plan to cut gas prices. He held a press conference Thursday to announce how, per ABC News. Today I'm authorizing the release of one million barrels per day for the next six months, over 180 million barrels from from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. As the president said, the one million barrels of oil per day will continue to be released for the next six months. This will allow time for domestic production to ramp up and meet energy demands. The White House noted the historic nature of releasing so much oil from America's strategic reserve. They wrote in a statement that the world has never had a release of oil reserves at this one million per day rate for this length of time. Oil prices did fall slightly Thursday in anticipation of Biden's plan to address the energy crisis. But just how much will the one million barrels of oil a day help to lower gas prices at the pump? That remains to be seen. What we do know is the one million barrels a day represents about 5 percent of the oil Americans use every day, or 1 percent of the oil used globally every day. As the New York Times reports, Russian oil exports are down about 3 million barrels a day. Chief executive at a major Texas oil company, Pioneer Natural Resources, Scott Sheffield, reacted to the announcement, telling the Times it will lower the oil price a little and encourage more demand. But it is still a Band-Aid on a significant shortfall of supply. Senator Rick Scott joined Heritage Foundation President Kevin Roberts and Heritage Action for America Executive Director Jessica Anderson on Thursday for an event at the Heritage Foundation titled Rescuing America. The three discussed an 11-point plan that Scott released to rescue America from the radical left. Here's a segment of a video Scott made to discuss his plan. This plan will resonate with the American people. It's all up to us. We can turn this country around and make America's future great. Or we can sit quietly and watch as it burns down all around us. So yes, my plan will be very unpopular in Washington, D.C. But outside of Washington, in real America, people are ready to fight back. People are ready to rally and rescue America from the woke lunatics who think they're in charge. Scott's plan included having every child say the Pledge of Allegiance in school, ending America's economic reliance on China, and setting term limits for elected leaders. The Heritage Foundation also released a set of strategic policy priorities that the organization will focus on in the upcoming year, including empowering parents to make education choices, securing America's borders and reducing crime, and ensuring free and fair elections. Following the event, Scott hosted a press briefing where Daily Signal reporter Fred Lucas asked the senator questions surrounding election integrity and China. Take a listen. 
First, uh, on election integrity, uh, that's usually been our, what we've seen in 2021, the laws passed then, it's been a purview for the states. Uh, what are you looking at to bring nationally? And also, uh, I, well, I'll, I'll ask about China next. Yeah, sure. Well, first off, I, you know, I do the bill that require uh, voter ID. I think, it, I think we ought to have voter ID. I think we ought to make sure that ballot uh, harvesting is, is, um, is outlawed. It shouldn't happen. Uh, we got rid of it, I think, in 2011 in Florida. I don't think we ought to have that. Um, but you're right. Most of these things, most of the things on election uh, integrity are going to be done at the local level. Up here right now, what we're doing is preventing the Democrats from trying to break the election through saying you can't have an ID, you can't ask for an ID, and you have to have ballot harms and stuff like that. So I think probably most of it, it will be uh, done at the state level. And I, on, on China also, um, how long would it take realistically to decouple? It's going to take a while. I think it, but just because something's going to take a while doesn't mean you don't get started. Here's the way I, I think about it. The, we, we watched what happened with Ukraine. Right. Americans expected and American businesses acted uh, and they walked away from doing business with Russia. Uh, that's easier uh, than it would be uh, in China. So I think what we have to say to ourselves is that is that we should expect we're going to have to do the same thing with China. Um, they, they've been clear, uh, Putin was clear that he was going to invade. She's been very clear that he's going to uh, take over Taiwan. So let's all, let's be realistic. We have to start today and work every day, make ourselves less dependent. So what can we do? Uh, I don't think the first thing you do is you don't say, what can the government do? We should be saying, what can we do? Well, what can we do? Stop buying anything made in communist China. A recorded version of the event can be found on the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is calling for a code of ethics at the highest court in the land. During her daily press briefing Thursday, Pelosi said that the U.S. Supreme Court should adopt a code of ethics per Now This News. In our H.R. 1, our bill to have cleaner government, we have a call for uh, the Supreme Court to have a code of ethics. They have no code of ethics. Uh, and it's really, it's the Supreme Court of the United States. They're making judgments about the air we breathe and everything else, and we don't even know what their ethical... Uh, standard is. So I would like to see that bill have a hearing, N not the whole bill, but taking out that piece. We've already passed the whole bill, but to focus on uh, the um, Supreme Court ethics standard. Pelosi's remarks come as Justice Clarence Thomas has come under scrutiny recently after it was discovered that his wife, Ginny Thomas, exchanged messages with former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows after the 2020 election. In the messages, Ginny Thomas claimed the outcome of the election was not legitimate. During her remarks, Pelosi accused Ginny Thomas of contributing to a coup. If your wife is an admitted and proud contributor to a coup of our country, maybe you should weigh that in your ethical standards. Pelosi also told press that she does not think Justice Thomas should have ever been appointed to the Supreme Court. Starting April 11th, Americans will have three choices when marking their gender on their passport, male, female, and X. The State Department announced the new option on Thursday, with X representing unspecified or gender identities that aren't male or female. In a statement announcing the new option, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said, 
We continue to work closely with our federal government partners to ensure as smooth a travel experience as possible for all passport holders, regardless of their gender identity. He added, we reaffirm our commitment to promoting and protecting the freedom, dignity, and equality of all persons, including transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming persons around the world. Currently, the X is only an option for passports, but Blinken said that there were plans to include it on other documentation next year. Arizona has new election integrity laws. The state is now requiring residents to show proof of citizenship to vote. And voters who are new to the state will be required to show proof of residency in order to cast their ballot. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey said in a letter that election integrity means counting every lawful vote and prohibiting any attempt to illegally cast a vote. But activists on the left are already voicing their opposition. Litigation director for the Fair Election Center, John Sherman, told Fox 10 that Arizona's way out on a limb here. Attorneys with Arizona's state legislature say parts of the newly signed bill are unconstitutional and may be thrown out in court. But Ducey says the bill is a balanced approach that honors Arizona's history of making voting accessible without sacrificing security in our elections. Now stay tuned for my conversation with March for Life President Jeannie Mancini as we discuss what a post-Roe world might look like. If you're tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at heritage.org. My guest today is Jeannie Mancini, president of March for Life. Jeannie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So this is actually very exciting because you just recently held a state March for Life in Connecticut. Normally, the March for Life happens in Washington, D.C. each year, but for for certain reasons, you've decided to start holding state marches. So how did the march in Connecticut go? It was fantastic. So uh, Connecticut is a hostile environment to life. I mean, I even as I was doing a radio interview there, one of the commercials that came on during the interview, so obviously for a you know not necessarily conservative station, was about physician-assisted suicide. Mm. Uh, and I mean, it's very hostile to life. Uh, it, it's just it's definitely a very blue state when it comes to life. So all of that said, uh, we got over 3,000 people out for the first march, which is a good number for a state march, and the enthusiasm was palpable. Uh, churches were very active, the Catholic Church, the evangelical churches were very active in the march. Um, there were a lot of periphery events, and I'm hoping and praying that we started just a new spark <laughs> with the grassroots in Connecticut for life. That's wonderful. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear that it went well. I'm curious, too, what was the makeup of some of the people there? Was it mostly older people? Was it some younger people? What did it look like? So a little bit different than the National March. So anyone who's been to the National March will know that we are primarily young people that participate like 80, a good 80 percent are young people, students or young adults. This one did have more of an older demographic, although there were plenty of students, I'd say maybe a fifth of the crowd was uh, student aged. 
And there were uh, people with very diverse backgrounds, uh, really reflective of the state of Connecticut. As I looked around out into the crowd and as I was able to speak with people, I mean, our secret lineup kind of showed that too, but definitely different ethnic backgrounds, different religious backgrounds. And, um, I, you know, we had some some elderly people there, some people with disabilities, uh, so uh, just some some young adults. I mean, really kind of a wide variety. It was kind of a good smattering of what the pro-life movement is about. Good. So the reason that we're talking about this now is that the Supreme Court seems primed to either seriously gut or completely strike down Roe v. Wade and do something in terms of abortion at the federal level. If that is to happen, what are the immediate consequences? So we are hoping and praying that that is the case. So what you're referring to right now is the Dobbs Mississippi case that's before the Supreme Court, and they could come out with opinions any day on this. It's likely that they'll do that in late June, and please, God willing, they will overturn Roe, um, even though the case itself is about allowing states to enact pro-life laws prior to viability, in this case, 15 weeks and later. So that's what the actual case is about. If Roe is overturned. Essentially, what happens is the question of pro-life issues returns to the legislative branches in the state. So states are given much more control over what they can and can't decide because under Roe and Doe and Casey, a state like Mississippi right now is not legally allowed to enact a pro-life law that would limit abortions after 15 weeks, which is really shocking. Mm -hmm. So in terms of if this – again, if, if Roe is to be either pared back or to be struck down or we're supposed to see at a federal level a severe restriction on abortion, what is the March for Life's plan in a post-Roe world? Do you continue to march on uh, D.C.? Do you continue to go to the states? What is the plan? We will continue to march in D.C. every year because we will still need to march. I mean, what we're seeing at the federal level right now are um, really pro-abortion proponents teeing up all sorts of bills and, and, you know, bad things, I would say, for the moment that this decision comes down. And you can see that there, there's a lot of fear on their side right now. So we will need to continue fighting at the federal level, no doubt. I mean, there's, there's no question. However, the role of the states and the pro-life grassroots in the states will be even more important than it's been in these last years which has already been so important. And uh, providentially, you know, we began the state march program five years ago mm -hmm. and um, started to fully roll it out in 2019. But then in 2020, we were stymied. But uh, little did we know uh, that this would be, this decision would be taken up or this case would be taken up by the Supreme Court and that we could actually be looking at the situation that we're looking at now, which is that states would have much more control over the laws that can protect life. So, um, states like Connecticut, uh, next month we'll be in Virginia for the fourth annual Virginia March for Life. We'll be in California a couple months later after that, in Pennsylvania after that, in Ohio. All of these states are very important, and we plan to be, in, a, in short order, in all 50 states. And it's, are we seeing that that is having impact on the ground? I know my, my home state of Oregon is very, very, very blue. And the, you know, quote unquote, right to an abortion is something that a lot of Oregonians will talk about. Are we seeing that the, the discussion at the federal level and March for Life at the state level is starting to move the dial, move the needle on this? Absolutely. So let me give you a, a quick, quick example anecdotally. So 
we had our first annual California March for Life in Sacramento in August, so 2021 August. And it was a small march, a very blue state. We organized it late in the game because of COVID. Uh, so we had under a thousand people that were participating in that. But even with that small number of marchers, we were able to get the participants to uh, alert their legislators about a bad bill um, related to health insurance coverage of abortion. And the very next day after the March for Life, that bill was removed from the assembly floor. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, definitely rallying the grassroots has tremendous impact. But uh, as to the, the point that you made being from Oregon and a very blue state and all of this, uh, you know, even I would put Connecticut and Oregon, there are similarities, certainly. Oregon's probably um, a little bit further to the left there with some of the issues. But, uh, I, you know, even when we're having the march, we have the people just chant, like, would you like to make abortion unthinkable? And if you could just hear the rallying cry of mm. people, well, we got text messages from some people who were on the House floor in Connecticut. And for those assembly people to hear, you know, the positive and enthusiastic rallying cry outside of people who want to protect life, it does make a difference. I mean, it does have an impact. So, yes, I do think that we're seeing some positive things happening. Do we have any data, any polling data that would show where Americans are on abortion? I know that previous polls we've seen sometimes say that there's a viability <laughs> line that people are comfortable with. Are we seeing that that viability line is moving further back? Are we seeing that Americans are more comfortable with the idea of just completely outlawing abortion? Where where are Americans at on this issue? Great, great question. So uh, it's important to note before mentioning this poll that America is up there with the likes of North Korea and China in terms of allowing late-term abortion. So we're one of oh, wow. seven countries. Yes, yeah, seven countries around the world that allows late-term abortion. So most European countries do not have laws as wide open on abortion as the United States does. So what most Americans, most, so this is like seven out of 10 or eight out of 10 Americans for well over a decade have polled that they would limit abortion at most to the first three months of pregnancy. But under Roe and Doe, abortion is allowed until birth and pro-abortion advocates are paying, you know, advocated for until birth, paid for by your tax dollars, et cetera, with no, no exceptions. So, uh, it, so Americans largely want our laws more reflective of, say, a European country. So, you know, 12 weeks, et cetera. And at the March for Life, we're, we're really trying to end abortion, to, mm -hmm. to make abortion unthinkable. So even, you know, most of the abortions do happen in the first three months of pregnancy. So we're working there too. But if we could move in the direction at least of making our laws reflective of the hearts and minds of Americans here and limit it much more than it is limited now or even allowed to be limited again under Roe. Let's talk about some examples of legislation that's been passed to limit or completely eliminate abortion in the states. Obviously, the Texas law is a great example, but Oklahoma recently passed a bill that would ban all medically unnecessary abortions in the state. Is that the type of legislation March for Life is looking for? You know, we are favorable towards most legislation. I don't have the language of the bill right in front of me right now, but certainly we want to move in the direction of the protection of life. And I have to say, I was surprised by the Texas bill, and I'm still surprised that it's on the books. But to watch, to see how this has come to pass and to see here we are, you know, five, six months later, um, that how many lives have been saved. 
um, how many pregnancy centers are really teeing up with greater resources for men and women facing unexpected pregnancies, et cetera. It's just been beautiful. So we're strongly behind that law. I'd like to look at, uh, did you say, I think you said it was Ohio. Oklahoma. Um, the second, Oklahoma. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'd like to look at that before I comment on it publicly. Absolutely. Um, so totally I'm not going to do that right now, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a really good, definitely it would be very good to have the precise language in front of you before making a decision. One of the things that I've always been curious about, I mentioned that I'm from Portland, Oregon, and I would talk with friends of mine who were very pro-abortion, and they would say things like, well, you know, it's the woman's right to choose. As as a guy, for me, this is kind of different because I, I obviously don't understand that. I'm not a woman. Is there a, you know... Is there a campaign here that that pro-choice women or pro-abortion women are waging against pro-life women in the fact of getting these types of bills repealed or keeping Roe v. Wade on the books? How is that how is that dynamic kind of affecting what March for Life does? Well, there's gosh, there's so much manipulative messaging out there about abortion and what we try to do with the march is to show it as it is, and especially to allow women to tell their stories. And then also to talk about how we are walking uh, with mothers in need, you know, and how critically important that is, how how not only is, you know, the mother a person with dignity, but the baby is too. And so we want we want to support them both and to love them both. And so what I've seen uh, so often is, that young women who, I don't know, they don't really hear both sides of the issue, uh, have really erroneous ideas that abortion is empowering for women. And then, gosh, so sadly, we have many, many anecdotes of that not being the case, of it really decimating a woman. And it's it's so important, especially in a podcast like this, where you've got such, large, um, such a large audience to to mention that there's always hope and healing. So if you know of someone or if you yourself have been involved in an abortion, there's always hope and healing after abortion. But the reality is that we know that women suffer tremendously after abortion, most women. I can't say every single woman, but most women suffer um, you know, more with substance abuse issues, more with depression and anxiety, sadly suicidal thoughts. So it's definitely not good for women's mental health. Um, so anyways, there's so much there. And I think that the bottom line is that the other side has, has you know, done some really powerful messaging on this. But you can, you know, you can call something a different name, but that doesn't change reality. Reality is not arbitrary. And the truth is, and it won't ever change, that abortion is not good for women, that abortion mm. takes the life of one and it wounds the life of another. Mm. Now, we've been kind of going through this conversation with the expectation that things will be more positive. We've been looking at these states' bills that are restrictive of abortion. But what is March for Life planning to do if, for example, Roe isn't overturned or even if, if it is enshrined in federal law? What is the plan then? Ah, great question, because it's true. We don't know how things will come down in, in June. We do know that they've made their decision. They could change at any time. They made their committee vote, you know, the, the Friday after December 1st when oral arguments were. Uh, we will keep marching. You know, uh, of course, there was this time when Planned Parenthood v. Casey uh, was before the, before the Supreme Court where there were many hopeful and positive expectations, and it, it didn't turn out that way. Um, but listen, at the end of the day, our goal is to make abortion unthinkable which means changing hearts and minds. 
so that no woman wants to choose abortion, right? And that she has the resources she needs to feel the support to choose life. And so whether the Supremes come down with a positive decision, which would be immense and historic and all of that, or not, uh, we still keep marching the next day, you know, figuratively and symbolically in, in how we're building a culture of life. The culture of life, I think, is such a fascinating phrase because it really is a culture. And to me, culture is sort of influenced a lot by the young. So young people who are going to be growing up, who are going to be teaching their children, who are going to be passing on these messages – there's a stereotype that younger Americans skew to the left and therefore are more likely to be pro-choice. Are we seeing a rise in younger Americans becoming more pro-life and joining this pro-life culture? Absolutely. Uh, anecdotally, come to the March for Life, right? And so for one. Uh, two, uh, take a look at one of my favorite uh, surveys on this to look at is the General Social Survey, which is this longitudinal um, look at the data that the government, the federal government has done, and by a wide margin, young people are the largest demographic, the largest cohort that has moved in the direction of protecting life and becoming more pro-life. So, yes. Um, one, one other quick fun story. The then head of NARAL Pro-Choice America, um, who take credit for being like kind of the architects behind legalized abortion in America, uh, her name was Nancy Keenan, uh, it, maybe about 10 years ago, was in town and out for lunch <laughs> during a March for Life one day, and she was blown away by the amount of young people and their positivity and their signs and their you know T-shirts and all this. And uh, she made the decision to step down from her job mm. uh, shortly thereafter because she thought that her side <laughs> wasn't recruiting young people in the way that they needed to and that they needed to have better marketing skills. Uh, what she didn't realize is that the young people realize that the product is flawed. You know, mm. it's not the product that needs better marketing. It's just that it's inherently flawed. And right. young people are attracted to life and to love and to a culture of life. Mm. So as we begin to wrap up here, I'm curious we're waiting for a decision from the Supreme Court. So I think before that comes down, it's very tough to, to sort of take any solid action. But as Americans are waiting for that decision, what can people who are part of this culture of life, who are concerned with the way abortion is going and concerned with Roe v. Wade and Casey, what can they do to either fight against abortion in their state or to spread the message of a pro-life culture at the grassroots level? Okay, so many things that you can do. So uh, for starters, each of us is called to do it differently. So to take a deep look in your heart, to think about what, you know, what am I called to do? Like, how can I contribute to a culture of life? Because I feel like everybody can answer that best in their own way. But let me give a few examples and a few um, suggestions. So for one, you could do something like join 40 Days for Life and pray outside abortion centers. We know that abortions go down and that people are converted um, to, the, to the issue. But even if you're not a person of faith, there are so many wonderful things. You can run for school board. You can write a letter to the editor. You can uh, give a donation to a pregnancy care center in your local area. Give a donation to the March for Life or any other pro-life group. You can go volunteer at a local pregnancy care center. I mean, these centers are incredible with the resources that they give men and women facing unexpected pregnancies. Well over $270 million annually, which is just unbelievable and free resources. So mm. you can join a march in your state and, you know, like people in Connecticut or um, here in Virginia next month, 
get online. You can sign up for our activist alert so that when something's coming up at the federal level or at your state, you can text in or email in or write a letter to your elected official to make a difference. So listen, there's no lack of work to be done in the pro-life movement. Um, and what we really need is for everybody to do their part. That's great advice. That was Jeannie Mancini, president of March for Life. Jeannie, really appreciate your time. So grateful. Thanks for having me on. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And as always, please encourage others to listen. Thanks again for listening. And we'll be back with you all on Monday. Happy April Fools. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Doug Blair. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.